Instead of going to Revelation 18, because we have our church congregation meeting right after our service, we're going to go to Ephesians 4 for just a few minutes. Ephesians chapter 4, we'll come back to, to Revelation 18 next week and continue on in that study. But today we're, I'm going to take you to Ephesians 4 just for a few minutes. I've started to uh, get into this habit when we have a church meeting, I want to speak about something about the church. And uh, this morning in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul has given us what I would refer to as church growth 101, okay? And that's where we are this morning. I'm just going to point out a few things here that he gives us. But let's read the first 16 verses, and you go, oh, 16 verses is going to be two hours long. No, we'll go pretty quickly through this, but there's a few principles here that I want to point out. So we'll start reading at verse 1 down through 16, and uh, then we'll see what God has for us here. So starting at verse 1 in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through you all, through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that also he descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. We'll stop there. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll just take a minute to look at what these verses teach us. Lord, again, we just thank you for your word as we embark on this uh, adventure together, seeing what you have taught us and learning those things that we need to know as we function and live as your church, Lord. I pray that you would give clarity, help us to understand how to apply these principles today. And so, Lord, we need your help. We need your spirit to guide us. And, Lord, I need your spirit to fill me. I ask for the filling of your spirit, that you would give me power, give me strength, give me your wisdom, that your words might be spoken, and that you might be glorified in this time. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at Ephesians chapter 4, um, as I said, Paul kind of gives us a very quick outline of Church Growth 101. This is the foundation. Every church wants to grow and be strong, and 
every church, I would say most churches, okay, maybe not every church, but strength and growth really have to be looked at spiritually, not just in numbers, okay? Now, as a pastor, I mean, it's nice to see more people sitting in the pews, but the concern that I have and that all pastors should have is not so much that we get more and more people at Bunker Hill Community Church, it's that we grow spiritually together, Okay, that's the most important thing, because if we're not growing spiritually, it doesn't matter how many people are here. So that's what Paul's talking about here. So the question is, how do we grow spiritually? How does the church grow spiritually? That's church growth 101, spiritual first, the numbers God will take care of. And in Ephesians 4, Paul gives us this recipe for Christian growth or church Christian growth. And he starts with an individual approach, looking at believers individually. So first, he starts off and he says, first of all, in verse 1, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. And he says, I beseech you, he's begging us. Now he's talking to Ephesian believers here in that church then, but this applies to all of us. And he says, I'm begging you as believers to walk worthy of the calling. What calling is that? Well, it's salvation. We have been saved, and therefore, as saved believers, our goal is to glorify God in everything and to accomplish his work through our lives, okay? So Paul says, I'm calling you, or I'm begging you to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In Romans chapter 1, he says this, among whom ye are also the called of Jesus Christ. Being saved means God has called you to something, okay? And in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul says, moreover, moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he hath called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. And it goes on to say, to be conformed to the image of his Son. So we are called to be like Jesus. That's our calling as believers, very simply. And so each one of us then is responsible to God to live that calling in our lives so that people can see Jesus in us. There is the beginning of church growth as each of us are responsible to walk worthy of the calling to be like Christ. Okay, in verse 2, he describes what it will look like if we actually do this. Uh, and he says, with all lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Now, it sounds familiar. If it sounds familiar, it's a reference to the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And it's fruit that we don't produce of ourselves. It's fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us as we submit ourselves to him. And so Paul says, if you're goal is to walk worthy of the calling that God has given you, then that fruit will be there because you're not going to do it by yourself. You're not going to do it for your own purposes. You're going to do it through God's spirit, with God's help, for God's purpose, and your life then will reflect the character of Jesus Christ. See, we become more like Christ as the spirit does his work in us. And so he says, your life will look like lowliness and meekness. Now, I heard a pastor say this, Although lowliness and meekness is the opposite of pride, you can define it this way. It's not so much that you're not thinking too much of yourself, which is important. We shouldn't think too much of ourselves. It also includes not thinking of yourself too much. That means put others first. Don't put yourself first. 
That's the lowliness and meekness. And then he says, in long-suffering. Now, when we looked at um, the fruit of the Spirit, this is that Greek word, macrothumia. Okay, and I was joking. The macro means big. Thumia means patience with people. So we're supposed to have patience with big people, right? That's not what it means. It means we're supposed to have big patience with people or massive patience. In other words, we don't lose it with other people, no matter how far they drive us crazy, okay? So that's that long-suffering, patience with people, which leads to overlooking offenses, even the ones that are committed against us. And that leads to the next one, forbearing one another in love. Because when we forbear in love, when we live in love, putting others first, ahead of our own well-being and ahead of our own goals and our own life, then we look out for their good. And what's the first thing we need to do to help them find their good? Forgive them. Okay, We can't forgive them of their sin, but we can forgive them of all the offenses they've committed against us. And that just opens the door for us to be able to help them even more. And so Paul says, if you're going to live like Christ, meekness, patience, and forbearance and love are going to be the the character of your life. And verse 3 is the result. If we all live this way, he says, we'll strive to maintain unity through the Spirit of God, which results in peace. Now, every single church will have to say one of the goals that we strive for in the church is to maintain peace in the members. Obviously, nobody wants to have division and strife and problems within the church. We want peace, right? Well, he just gave us the recipe for peace. Love one another. Have patience with another. Live toward others the way Christ lived while he was on earth. And if you do that, then through the Spirit of God, you will have peace, or actually the word is maintain the peace that the Holy Spirit already has established. See, we don't make peace in church. We don't find peace with each other. God has already put us in a condition of peacefulness within his church. It's us who messes that up. Because when we bring our own stuff in and we want our own way and we cause problems, that's what disrupts peace. So it's not like God has brought a whole bunch of people together inside his church and he says, okay, now I want you to figure out how to get along. He's already given us peace in him and then we go our own way and mess that up. So Paul is saying, get back to maintaining, living in the peace that God has already established and do that by living in the life that he has already established for you. If we have a lack of peace in church, it's because of us. James 4, verse 1 says, From whence do wars and fightings come among you? Come they not even of your lusts that warn your members? Selfishness. That's what causes problems in church. Selfishness. I want things to be this way. I think we should do it this way. I want this color carpet. I want these things on the walls. I want the pastor to preach this message. I want this. I want that. Okay, it's selfishness. That's what causes problems. And if we eliminated selfishness from church, we would have the peace that Paul's talking about because we would be living to lift each other up in love rather than to get what we want out of the situation, okay? So Paul says we can maintain that unity in peace if we live according to the calling that God has called us to. So verses 1 through 3 are the individual responsibility that each of us has to contribute to maintaining peace within God's church. And every single one of us here is part of that. 
We all have that responsibility, not just some of us, not just the one up here. It's all of us. And that's what God has called us to. And so that's step one. If we're going to grow the church or see growth in God's church, we have to live like Christ. We have to walk worthy according to the calling that with which we have been called. In step two, he starts in verses four through six. He says we need to understand what the church is. Okay, If we're going to live in peace, let's understand what the church is. And so he says in verse 4, there's one body, one spirit, even as ye are called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, here's your quiz to make sure you're paying attention today. What word is repeated over and over in those verses? One, okay, one. Some of you are awake, that's good, okay? One, and he emphasizes the one because he just said, We're supposed to live in unity. That unity is in the one. Okay, and he says, here it is, the one, the one body. We are all one body. We are not separate bodies. Okay, we're all part of the same body. Therefore, we have to find a way to get along in love. Otherwise, the body's not going to work. So he says, we're one body. That means we're all different parts of the same body. It doesn't mean we all have to be the same part. We don't all do the same things. We don't all look the same. We don't all live our lives with all the fine details the same, but we should live in love toward one another because it's the same body. And therefore, our goal should be to edify and build up and strengthen this body. Now, not just the local church. This is just a representative, a representation of the universal church. All believers who have been saved from Pentecost until the rapture are part of that church. And so that unity shouldn't exist just within these walls. It should, should exist outside these walls with other believers as well. You know, have you ever, uh, in Sunday school, the, the point was brought up, you ever gone to a different church, you hardly know anybody there, and yet when you get there, it's like there's a connection with people, and you have fellowship with those people because we are one body, okay? So Paul says one body, understand what the church is. And there's one spirit. We all have the same Holy Spirit in us. You do not have a different Holy Spirit than I have. Okay, when we look at God's word, God is not going to say, well, for you, this verse means this, but for him, this verse means something else. Okay, it's one spirit. And so he's going to say the same things to all of us. Now, we each have our own problems. We have different issues in our life that the Holy Spirit will teach us through. But it's the same spirit. And so to resolve problems, especially within the church, God is not going to give us, through his spirit, 12 different answers through 12 different people. It's one spirit. See, there's that unity, one hope. We all have the same destination in heaven, I hope. And that's what we're looking forward to. So we should live that way. We're all going to the same place. I've said this, I've asked this question before. What's more important, your physical family on earth, or let me bring it down to this, marriage, Or your church family? That's a hard one. But the answer is your church family, because you're going to live with them forever. When you get to heaven, there will be no marriage, okay? Because it will all be about Christ. So your church family is the most important priority for you as a believer. Now, for those of you who are mothers and fathers, your church family better include your children, And that's why the family is so important as well. You start there, okay? But it's the church family that is the priority. 
because they'll they'll last forever. So he says, one spirit, one hope, and then he goes, one Lord. That's Jesus Christ. Now, one Lord means he's in charge. That's our master. We all have the same master, so we're just doing what he says, not what we want. That's why Paul says, one Lord. He goes on, he says, one faith. We all believe the same thing. We're all saved the same way. Right? Somebody didn't come in and say, oh, you know, you guys have the gospel. I got saved this other way. It's kind of new. You should hear it. Okay, you hear that? That's another gospel that Paul says, that's anathema. You you stay away from that. Okay? So we have one faith, and then he says one baptism. And this is not just referring to going under the water, okay, and showing that outward testimony of dying to yourself and being risen in Christ. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that For by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. And so the one spirit, the one body, one baptism. So there's the unity. That's the foundation of unity we have as a church. And he goes on in verse 6, and he says, One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. And here we have a basic description of the doctrine of Almighty God. Now, we have to start there, and Paul puts it last, but that's the the most foundational principle of Christianity. You have to believe in one God, the only living God. That's where it starts. Okay? And we have the same God. And so he emphasizes one here over and over to remind us that we're all together in this for the same reason, for the same purpose, through the same procedures, through the same process. Okay? And we should be one. So Paul's emphasizing this unity here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says, I beseech you, brethren, uses the same words there, I beg you, he's saying, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you. I heard a pastor read it this way. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you speak the same thing, and there be no denominations among you. Interesting perspective. Why do we have denominations in the Church of Christ? I mean, there's Lutheran, there's Presbyterian, there's Baptist, there's whatever, okay? Why? Because each one has taken the Word of God, interpreted it differently for their group, and they practice things differently. Does that mean we're separate churches? Well, we're separate local churches, but we're still the body of Christ, one body, And so those differences really shouldn't matter unless they deny the gospel of Jesus Christ and the foundational truths of the gospel. Okay? That's important. But Paul says, I beg you, don't have divisions. Find this unity because it's all one church. And so here's a recipe for peaceful church. No divisions, no arguments, no factions, no gossip, no resentment, no anger, no criticism. Peaceful fellowship and edification. Okay, because we're all working toward the same thing. And then Paul tells us in verse 7 where that peaceful fellowship starts. He says, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. God has demonstrated his grace to us through Jesus Christ in salvation. Okay, that's only by grace. The Bible says that over and over and over. Without God's grace, none of us could be saved. And so we have our salvation by grace. But God has poured his grace upon us, not so we can soak it up like a sponge and enjoy all the blessings of having God's grace. God has poured his grace upon us so that we can pour it out to other people. We are to be channels, not sponges. Okay? And so Paul says we've been given grace, therefore we need to live in grace. 
Now, he doesn't say it in those words. What he says is, we have been given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Now, the gift that he's talking there, talking about there is not just the gift of salvation. He's talking about the spiritual gifts that God gives every single believer who is truly saved. And we are all, if you are a true believer, you have a spiritual gift, at least one. Now, Paul explains those in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in Romans chapter 12, and even here we're going to look at in just a minute. There's not an exhaustive list, but those gifts include people who have the gifts of teaching, the gift of mercy, the gift of helps, the gift of administration, the gift of faith, the gift of prophecy, the gift of giving, and so on and so on. The list goes on and on. But all of us as believers have been given at least one gift. What are we supposed to do with it? Show off so everybody can see how great we are with that gift, right? No, that's pride. We are supposed to edify each other. Show grace to each other through that gift. And so Paul says, God has given you grace through Jesus Christ. Now it's up to us to use those gifts to show grace. Okay? So um, here we have how we're supposed to relate to each other in the church, in grace, pouring that grace upon one another through those spiritual gifts. And then the next three verses, 8 through 10, I mean, and there's some deep theological truth here. I'm not going to take the time to go into that today, but he says, he hath ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, he gave gifts unto men. There's those spiritual gifts. Now that he ascended, what is it? But he first descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended far up above all heavens, that he might fill all things. In summary, it's the death and resurrection and the ascension and glorification of Jesus Christ. And it's through that that all of this is made possible. Okay? So moving on, we have step two is understanding what the church is. We are here as a church to pour grace upon each other. And we do that through our spiritual gifts. That will help maintain unity. And then he gets to step three in verse 11. And Paul lists five spiritual gifts. He gives us some examples. And these are all what we would call speaking gifts. Look at the list he gives us. Okay? And some he gave apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now, some people would put the last two together. And there are commentators who say, okay, the pastor-teacher is one gift. It's a combination. Okay, I don't necessarily agree with that um, technically. Yes, I believe a pastor has to be a teacher. Anybody who's an elder and is gifted with that gift to be a pastor, the Bible says he has to be apt to teach. So you can put the pastor-teacher together that way. But I know many people who have the gift of teaching who are not pastors. Okay, But the point is this. Paul has listed these gifts for us. And we look at this list and we say, okay, well, these are the people who are up front. Right? They're the most outspoken. They're the leaders in the church, if you will, especially the early church. We have apostles, obviously, you know, the 12 apostles, and then Paul. Prophets, who thus saith the word of God. They would give people what God said, the truth of God, before the Bible was finished. Evangelists, those are people who take the gospel. Okay, We can even call them missionaries, although apostles is the word sent ones. So we could actually use the word apostle in a loose sense and say missionaries are apostles. But we have apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then we have pastors and teachers. Okay? 
But look at verse 12. Why do we have these people who are up front speaking most of the time? What is the purpose for them? Verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So the job of pastors, teachers, evangelists, apostles, prophets, those gifts are given so that all of us can be built up, can be encouraged, can be strengthened in our faith and helps us and help to understand what our purpose in ministry is. And what Paul says is for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. What he's saying is to help regular Christians, the people who don't have these speaking gifts, they have other gifts, but to help them to understand how their gifts fit into the body of Christ so that they can minister to the body of Christ. Ministry is all of our job, not just these five people. It's not just pastors and teachers. Ministry is all of us. We are all called to minister to each other. And you have a gift specifically that God has given you to do that to help each other. And so Paul says, yeah, there's five here. These are the ones people think are important, but their goal is to help everybody else understand what their gift is so they can mature and grow and be strengthened in order to minister to other people. He goes on, look at verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He's talking about unity at the beginning of the chapter, and he says here in verse uh, 13, the goal for ministry is what? To maintain unity. What's the unity around? Christ Jesus to build unity as we serve together, as we worship together, as we exalt Jesus Christ as our Lord. That's what your gift is for. But you have to do it by serving other people. And the goal at the end of chapter thir- or the end of verse 13, unto, uh, until we arrive as a perfect man, or complete is the word there, mature, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now here's the question. What does a mature Christian look like? He looks a lot like Jesus Christ. He has the character, the nature of the gifts or of the fruit of the Spirit in his life that you can see in his life. That's the goal that we all aspire to. That's what we should be living for, to become more mature Christians. Now, if you have any other goal in your Christian life than to become more mature Christians, then you're wasting your time. Why do we come to church? to become more mature Christians. How do we do that? Not by sitting here and soaking it in and letting everybody serve me. We become mature by serving. Okay? And when I stand up here, when we have Sunday school teachers who stand and teach the Bible, the whole point of teaching is not so that you will know more. The whole point of teaching is so that you will learn how to serve God in your life. You take what you have learned and put it into practice. That's called growing. Okay, that's why when you went to school, the teacher gave you a test. What if you went through school, and I think my daughter Katie would love this, but what if you went through school and the teacher said, okay, I want you to read this chapter, and when you're done, just tell me that you read it. And, you know, I'll just assume you learned everything. Oh, that would have been easy, right? 
I mean, we could have lied our way through school, but what happens at the end? You come out of the end of school and you're, like, you're as dumb as a rock, right? You don't know anything. And not only do you not know anything, but you don't know how to do anything. And see, that's the whole point. We don't learn so we know, we learn so we can do. And Paul says maturing is about learning to serve each other in love. You want the basis of a strong church? It's one where the majority of members are serving, not sitting. Okay? And so Paul says all of these things come to building up the church. Okay? We are supposed to attain to the unity of the faith. We already talked about that. The knowledge of the Son of God, knowing Christ, so that we can become mature, in verse 13, to become more like him. That's how we know we're maturing. If you're not becoming more like Jesus Christ, you're stuck. You're stagnant. In fact, Paul calls you a child, a baby, okay, still needing, needing milk from Hebrews. So our lives will look more and more like Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, gives us what people who don't mature look like. The author there says, For when the time came that you ought to be teachers, you still have need of one to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God. In other words, the very basics. You still don't understand the basics, even though you've been saved for some time. You, you, you just don't care about what God's truth means to you. And so you're still struggling with the basics. Now, I've met people that have told me in my past, not here, but I've met people in my past that have told me, Pastor, you preach way too deep. Uh, my pea brain can't handle that. You, you need to keep it shallow, surface, preach about the love of God, and, you know, keep it there. How do we mature if that's all we ever hear? And I, I know there are churches that do that, okay? They skim the cream, they throw it out there, everybody feels good, they go home. But if we don't dig, then we will never grow. But it's not just about my preaching. It's what are you doing? Are you digging? See, it takes work. We all need to grow up and become mature Christians. And that includes me. I'm not perfect. We all need to grow up. And growing means taking responsibility for our own growth. Don't let the pastor be the substance of your Christianity. If the only Bible you ever hear is what you come on Sunday to hear, you're in trouble. That's not going to help our church. That's not going to help you. We all need to be diligent in building ourselves, in a sense, up first by seeking God, studying his word, and then practicing what we know. I had this conversation, and we talked about this in, in um, Bible study last week. My son called me. He's trying to make a big decision in his life. And he said, I, I just, I don't see God's will in this yet. I said, okay, well, in the Bible, and I'm not going to expound on it, but in the Bible, there's six things that God has told us specifically that are his will. Number one, you have to be saved. Number two, you have to be spirit-filled if you're saved. Number three, you have to be sanctified. That means less and less sin as the Holy Spirit cleanses us. Number four, we have to submit to his authority, to worldly authority, and to each other. That's God's will. The Bible says that. Number five, we have to suffer. First Peter tells us that suffering is part of God's will for us. And then number six in 1 Thessalonians 5, we have to be thankful for all things, including the suffering. So those are six things that I know God says are his will. 
If you want to understand God's will beyond that, as far as this big decision is, are those six things in place? Have you submitted to God's will in those six things first? Because if you can't accept those, you'll never get any other answers beyond that. See, that's what it means to mature, to start using what we've learned from Scripture in our lives, putting it in practice. If we know the Bible says to love one another, but we just go about our lives only serving ourselves, you'll never grow. Now, this is what happens when we neglect that. Verse 14, if you don't want to grow, this is where you are. That henceforth we be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Maturity brings discernment and understanding about God's truth. Okay, If you only stick with, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, I know that, I learned it in kindergarten, and I can say it. And that, well, you know, that's all the Bible I need, really. Then you are ripe for the picking for all the false teachers out there. Okay? He says, if you're not going to become mature, you will be like children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Now, I know people personally who don't want the depth of the truth of God. They don't care about it. They're going to love people. They're going to love God. That's all that matters. And as I've known them for 20 and 30 years, you see their life up here, then it's down here, then it's over here, then it's over here. There's no consistency. How they live this out is not consistent. Even what they believe is not consistent. Every time something new comes along, oh, that sounds exciting, let's do that. And then 10 years later, oh, you know, I'm done with that. Oh, here's something new, let's go over here. Consistency in the truth is what defines a mature believer. And Paul says that here in verse 14. So we have to know the word of God for ourselves. The more you learn, the more you will be able to learn if you're using what God has already given you. Mature believers will know the truth and they will know how to use the truth, not just for themselves, but here's the key to maturity to help others. When's the last time you were able to encourage somebody with the word of God for their specific need? That's a sign of maturity. And it may be that God has spoken to you in your need through a specific message or passage of his word. And that became real to you. But now it's not about holding on to that for yourself. It's about passing that along to somebody else. See, there's maturity. Verse 15, look at verse 15. He says, but speaking the truth in love. Those people who are mature will speak to each other the truth, not your opinion, the truth of God in love. They will confront sin when it needs to be confronted in love. They will encourage each other when, it, when encouragement is needed in love. They will comfort each other in love. They will admonish each other in love. Mature believers speak the truth in love. That's the sign of maturity. And he says that we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. If you keep it for yourself 
That's like saying, you know what, I want to be the most mature here so that everybody will look at me as the leader, as the most knowledgeable. That's pride. God didn't give you his word and salvation and all that to keep it for yourself. God gave you his word and God gave you salvation and God gave you this church to build everybody else up with his truth. Verse 16, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, that's a very easy sentence, right? Okay, there's a lot of big words in there. Basically, all Paul is saying is this. All the parts are to work together when we do it Christ's way. And when all the parts work together and do what they're supposed to, doing it Christ's way, then who gets the glory at the end? Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. The word here, serving, when he says working, the effectual working, the measure of every part, that's the service. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. Actually, that word can also be interpreted worship. We worship God in how we serve. If you come and think you're worshiping God here by singing hymns and praying and listening to a message, and then you spend the rest of your week selfishly indulging yourself and ignoring people in need, there is absolutely nothing about you that exudes worship, even here. It's a ritual that you go through, but God does not see it as worship because this should be nothing more than doing together what we're doing individually the rest of the week. And if we're not serving other people in our own lives, and you come here and don't serve people in your, in your church life, there's no worship, no matter what you do in the service. That's what Paul says. We all need to work together. If we're all filling our spot, doing what we're supposed to be doing, then the body will be built up and Christ will be glorified. Now, let me ask you this question as we close. As a believer, do you take a stand to save the unborn? Now, you might be thinking, oh, he just went off on a rabbit trail, okay? How does abortion fit in with this message? Well, I'm not saying Christians shouldn't be concerned about abortion, but I wasn't talking about abortion. I'm talking about people who have not been born again. See, if you're all, yes, you've got to protect the babies, and you don't care if people are going to hell, what does that say about you? That's immaturity. You are not growing. Paul says a sign of maturity is that we reproduce. The church grows in numbers, not because we go invite people and tell them, oh, you've got to talk to the pastor, but because they see in us Christ, and God convicts them of their sin, and then they have a desire to have what you have. That's how the church reproduces in numbers. But it starts with personal Christian growth. And it starts with the mature believers doing what they're supposed to in this body. You want a strong church? 
all the links have to be strong. So here's the question I leave with you. Are you the weakest link? Are you the weakest link in the church? That should motivate us above anything else, but more than that, what does God see you as? Does God see you as a mature believer? Are you serving him? Are you worshiping him with your life? Are you working toward building a strong church? And so we end right where he started. That's your calling. I urge you to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called, becoming mature disciples of Christ so that his church might grow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the encouragement, the exhortation, the conviction that you have given us. May your word not come back void. You said it will always accomplish its purpose. And Lord, even though we don't follow it, sometimes it still does its work in judging us as not being responsible in what you've called us to. But Lord, I pray that it would be effective in motivating us to become mature disciples to build this church up as we edify one another, letting you do your work through us. And all of it is for your glory and your praise. And we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Our closing hymn, I think we're going to dispense with for today. I apologize, guys. Okay. We have to have a, a